Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopist, I'm joined by molecular biologist, a biophysicist and Nobel laureate, Richard Henderson of the MRCLMB down in Cambridge. And we'll discuss some of his pioneering work in the field of electron microscopy and ask him why understanding the structure of a protein is so fundamentally important. The proteins do everything in biology and, you know, you, you, we need to know their structures. And as a physicist, what attracted him? to biology and biophysics. Biophysics needs physicists to do physics in biology. We'll talk about his motorbike adventures in Scotland. It, it turns out riding a motorbike or a scooter in Scotland in the winter. That's <laughs> not very clever, it, is it? It's a dangerous thing, actually. Watching TV and his newfound passion for Netflix. The one I can strongly recommend and I thought was wonderful was the series called Breaking Bad. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Microscopists. I'm really excited today because I'm joined by Richard Henderson from the MRC Lab of Molecular Biology. And actually, I, I, I had a very quick look, Richard, at your CV, uh, but not too much detail, so I'm looking forward to learning more. But what was amazing is you are at the MRC of Molecular Biology. You got your undergraduate in physics at the University of Edinburgh, and you got the Nobel Prize for chemistry. Is there anything you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> well, most things I don't do, actually. But when uh, Joachim Frank and... Um... Jacques Dubochet and I went to Sweden to get this Nobel Prize. Um, there's two funny stories. Uh, one is we were all told somebody has to give a two to three minute speech thanking the king for giving us the Nobel Prize. And so I decided the best thing was to remain silent. But after about a couple of months, an email came from Joachim Frank saying, dear Richard, I notice one of us has to give a speech. I think it should be Jacques Dubochet. <laughs> so then I sprung into action. I said, excellent idea. <laughs> Why don't you ask him? <laughs> so Joachim then asked Jacques whether he'd be willing, because he was the most uh, charismatic Frenchman, to give the speech. And Jacques then replied, he said, well, he said, in these Nobel Prizes where there are three people sharing, he said, normally it's the oldest person who gives the speech, which would be Joachim Frank. Or failing that, it should be the youngest person, which is me. <laughs> he said, never is it the middle person. <laughs> so at this point, I could see these dangerous waves coming in from the side. So I sprung into action and wrote a very long persuasive email to Jacques about uh, his character, his charming nature, his charismatic speech, how it was, you know, is he the only one who could do it? And he replied with um, 
counter arguments to all of my arguments. But then in the end, and this was his mistake, he said, of course, but I am a Democrat. And so, you know, since we'd already arranged it, Jacques had to give the speech. And he said exactly what you said. He said, um, how is it that three people from physics working in biology get a Nobel Prize in chemistry? <laughs> and so when Jacques told us this is what he was going to say, I said to Jacques, you know, uh, you've heard of the Peter principle, which is that in any organization, you get promoted every time you can do the job well until you get your final promotion into a job that you're unqualified and incompetent at. And then you never get promoted again. So you remain in this job. So the equilibrium situation in the world is everybody's promoted until they're incompetent. So I suggested to Jacques, this is what he should put this in his, and he did actually, he put it in, but then he said, no, he didn't really agree with this. He thought that it showed that science nowadays was completely unified which was a kind of nice way to end, actually. Yeah. Really, those, that's my, that, so that's the reason, is that it's cross-fertilization, uh, biology needs physics, and the chemists are the most gregarious, outgoing, and welcoming because they've realized, you know, the periodic table's finished, chemistry isn't finished, you know, there's still lots of things to do, but if you look at the chemistry department, probably in York or in Cambridge, it's full of people doing biology or protein or nucleic acids and things like that. So the chemists are very, very good at being like the Catholic Church. They welcome everyone. Yeah. And, and as biologists, we need chemists. Indeed. Biologists need everybody. Yeah, it is. We kind of the end point, you know, the physics, the development of all the physics, the engineering, the chemists are all there to really help us to answer a question. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, in the end, of course, um, you know, in biology, 50 years ago, there were no genome sequences and possibly one protein structure. Now we have millions of genome sequences. And apparently in the protein data bank, there's 170,000 structures now. So pretty soon, you'll have the genomes of all the animals that people know the name of, like giraffes, elephants, lions, tigers, all the genomes are done. And you'll have protein structures known, maybe not for every single protein in every single species, but at least a representative example of them. So really, uh, biology is reaching the stage where a hell of a lot is known, but there are millions of untapped areas, you know, how the brain works, you know, how lots of different, how developmental biology of all the different tissues and organs. It's really a big, big open uh, book for quite a few years to come. So I, actually, I, I was going to ask you one, one of the, I, I just got a few questions I was going to ask. And so for, you know, for, for the non-specialist that's actually watching or listening, why is the structure of a protein so important to actually understand? <laughs> well, uh, it's difficult now in the modern world to put yourself back to the time when you didn't know protein structures. But, you know, back in the 30s, they were thought of be as unstructured colloids. And actually until it was shown that each protein was unique and had a unique sequence, because, you know, in 1950, when Fred Sanger was doing his um, insulin sequence, you know, it's not many amino acids. It, many people didn't believe it until that was done. But now, of course, we know 
a lot more than we did in 1950. Uh, and you know that almost every reaction in biology is catalyzed by an enzyme, and all enzymes are proteins apart from a few that are uh, RNA-based catalysts, and they're not very good catalysts. Proteins are much better. So basically, any function in biology, chemical catalysis, mechanical work, motors, recognition, signaling across membranes, signaling, you know, by diffusion. It's all based on the ability of individual proteins to do particular reactions. And you, you need to know the structure and how they work for all of these proteins. And now, of course, we know a lot about a lot of things. We know about muscle contraction, you know, oxygen in the blood, you know about all the receptors, you know, about adrenaline and your heartbeat and, you know, uh, how how nerves work and signal and they're all based on proteins so each protein has its own interest actually and lots of people used to spend their whole life working on one see max perutz worked on hemoglobin for his whole life and some of us tried to persuade him to be interested in other things but he's in the end he never he developed a slight interest in huntington's disease from these polyglutamine tracts when he was older but he was still mainly focused but now uh you know students can determine many protein structures in their phd thesis because of the power of the methods but anyway the proteins do everything in biology and you know you you we need to know their structures but once they're known not everybody needs to know everything about proteins you know you probably need an undergraduate degree you need to know a few examples and then the general principle of it uh, just feeds through into you know the subconscious minds of the scientific community and the lay community. Uh, so you know, um, I, I've not worked on all that many proteins, but even now there are new ones being discovered, or there are proteins that are in certain peculiar you know let's say amoeba or bacteria that haven't been found by homology in other species. So there's still an untapped area with. Um, proteins that are popping up out of the undergrowth. But generally, we know now a lot about proteins. So it's actually not quite a closed book, and it's not like the periodic table, but it's getting close. And of course, so once you know the structure, the importance of knowing it means you can then direct drugs and, and be more clever and smarter with how you're developing drugs to treat different aspects of life with that. Uh, and actually, I think you're you have a company just in that region. So, yeah, so I didn't, you know, obviously you can ask me, why is it interesting to know about proteins? But also almost all the drugs that you take, not all of them, um, they are either activators or inhibitors that are directed at one particular drug target, which is usually a protein. And in the human genome, for example, putting aside um, pathogenic organisms, but there's you know, let's say 20,000 proteins. So you could argue that a complete pharmacopoeia of drugs would mean you'd have one drug that inhibited every one of the 20,000 proteins in the human in one set of test tubes, and then another drug that activated them. And usually in disease processes, to cure you of, say, cancer, usually there are half a dozen genes or some cancers just two or three others 20 you might want to either block or activate uh, more than one gene and there aren't you know there are probably drugs against several hundred drug targets but there are not there is not yet a complete uh, 
library of activators and inhibitors for all the protein targets. And of course, there are other targets like viruses and bacteria, which you want to get rid of. So for example, in coronavirus, there are two drug targets that people think if we had really good drugs, which we do not have yet, yep. that would block the activity of the protease that cleaves up the polyprotein that's absolutely essential for coronavirus. And uh, there's the RNA polymerase that um, copies the genome of virus. These are the two prime drug targets, and there are hundreds of companies working on them. And they all have, all the companies, they all have now in the lab, really good in vitro inhibitors that block the activities of both of these drugs. But it will take three or four years until they feed their way through uh, to being approved for use. And then, you know, if it all goes well, you'll take a pill or two pills or one pill that has both drugs in the same, uh, and then it will completely stop coronavirus dead. You won't even need to bother with vaccination, but that's some years off. And in HIV, that is the current situation. There's, you know, um, a multi-drug treatment that will stop HIV in its tracks. And people who were dying six months after getting HIV from AIDS, now they can live forever, but they have to take the drugs, you know, indefinitely. But with coronavirus, you probably only have to take them long enough to clear you of the virus, and then you can stop taking them again. Yeah. So it, it probably needs some investment and the drug companies don't like, in terms of a business model, um, a drug that you take one of and completely cures you forever is not a very um, good business model. Yeah, what you want is a drug that when you get the disease, and HIV is such a one, you have to take it every day for the rest of your life. And so, you know, drugs against Alzheimer's disease, they've got a lot of investment, but drugs against coronavirus that give you it, you know, they will need to have some government or state or World Health Organization support to create the impetus to develop them. But the companies are all ready and waiting to take the money. So I just had lunch today with um, Malcolm Weir is the CEO of the company that we started about 14 years ago, and this is Heptaris, Sosai Heptaris, and they've got about something like 40 drug targets, and but only one or two of them have actually reached the stage of being in humans in clinical trials, not yet in, you know, in the, so it takes for small molecule drugs or even for antibody drugs, if you're putting them into people, it takes many years of clinical trials. And the great thing about the vaccines they've been able to do a very fast track uh, development of it. And now in the Britain, at least in the US and some other countries, um, the vaccines have worked, it'd be much better to have drugs. And these are inhibitors in this case against proteins. In the case of coronavirus, the spike protein that's on the outside of the virus and the polymerase that makes the next virus once it's infected the cells. Those are the two prime targets and, and people who do proteins and drug companies that develop drugs against the proteins, they are the people or the, the experts who can do the development, but they need to be pushed and funded by investments either from themselves or from venture capital or from governments or from the tax base. So, but it, but it is, uh, it is, uh, it's working. I mean, 
let's say before 1940, there was very little. I mean, penicillin is probably the first one. That was just just yeah. just pre-war and during the war, and then all the antibiotics. And now it's a big industry. Actually, pharmaceutical industry didn't really exist a hundred years ago. So, just just rewind the clock back. You, you've got you've got a spin-out company. Well, I, I, it's, not, it's an established company uh, that you spun out or set up, started. Uh, so that's another another complete dimension to your your career. And you start to why 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 as a physicist did you choose to then go into biology? Uh, you're not the first. Actually, I think Dan Davis was exactly the same. Did his degree in physics and then went on to become you know a star of immunology. Mm. Why biology? What attracted you to biology? All right. Well, so I can you know I I have <laughs> I've told this a few times actually, but um, when I was in school. I really did enjoy maths and science, and I couldn't wait to get rid of the, 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 the burden of having to study other things like English, French, Latin, whatever. And so when I was about 13 in high school, we were asked which subjects we would like to select for secondary education. It was, it was the hires. It, which in Scotland's like A levels in England, uh, or you know baccalaureate or whatever. So I filled in my form and I said I was going to do um, maths, science, and uh, technical subjects, engineering. Yeah. And then at this point, uh, English was compulsory, but none of the others. Um, I'm called into the headmaster's office, age thirteen, and they say. Um, you know that you won't be able to go to university unless you have a language, a foreign language. And so I said, I'm only 13 and from the rural parts. I hadn't heard of university at that point. We, you know, our family, you know, we, we universities didn't exist. We, we live in the countryside. So I said, OK, well, that seems like good advice. So then I look at my ability in languages and I had studied aged 11, 12, 13, I had studied French and Latin. And in the exam, just before I decided to give them both up, my score was 47% in Latin and 48% in, in French. And 50% is supposedly the pass mark. Okay. So I said, okay, 47 versus 48, I better do the 40. And so I chose French. <laughs> By 1%. So yeah. 48% in my, this is the end of three years of second. So then I studied French for two more years and I sat uh, my lower Scottish exams, which is equivalent of all levels or GCSE. Yeah, now. so you at 16 years, years of age. Yeah. And so I'd be, I'd be 15 or something like that, taking my, my old levels. And um, the only one I failed was French. So then, um, and I was the only one in the class who failed because I was obviously the most marginal. And I was only taking it because the headmaster told me I had to. Um, so then in the sixth year, which is the final year of school in Scotland, yeah. uh, I'm in the class and is the teacher and there are only two of us left. Uh, me, because I had failed lower French and another a uh, young girl, same age as me, but she was she'd failed higher French. 
because she'd picked. So yes. we had individual tuition for a whole year, both of us, one teacher, uh, two pupils. And at the end of that year of essentially, you know, several lessons every week for the whole year, I did pass. I got a, and then, but then they changed the, the result and it, the grading was A, B and C. So I scraped in with a C and consequently I was allowed to apply to university. <laughs> and so I, but at that point I finally could give up. And then I did physics and maths in Edinburgh. And then of course, the question you're asking is how did I get from physics and maths oh, well, why, why, but, into yeah, biology? Why, yeah, why choose it? Yeah. All right. So um, I always studied carefully each step in my career. <laughs> and in my, uh, let's see, uh, final year of physics, so I gave up maths after two years because you had to, you know, you have to, I did physics and maths for two years and then I, you have to choose. So I chose physics and gave up the maths. So then the final two years, four year degree in Scotland, third year and fourth year was physics. And at the end of that, I thought, well, what should I do next? After high school, scraping through with the French, uh, physics degree, um, doing well in physics, I have to say, because yep. I enjoyed it. I went, I thought I'd better go and see the careers advisory office in Edinburgh University. So I went along to the career advisory office and they said, oh, look at all these jobs you've done in the summer to earn money and physics. And they looked at the grades and they said, oh, they said, um, it's clear that you should do a PhD. <laughs> so I hadn't really heard about PhDs either. <laughs> but nevertheless, I thought, OK, I better look into this. So then um, the final exam came in physics at the end of the fourth year. And in Edinburgh, it was six papers. So five of them are on physics, you know, optics, electronics, and so on. But the, uh, the, the sixth paper was always considered to be a bit of fun. You had to write an essay and you're supposed to, uh, you know, be somewhat philosophical. So my um, essay at the end of my physics degree, it was multiple choice. You know, they were just giving you the opportunity. Yeah. So one of the topics was, would you like to write an essay for two or three hours? This was on, and I picked writing an essay on time. Now, you know, time normally means relativistic time and so on and so on. But I decided this was a fun thing. And because I'd been thinking about it a lot, I wrote that time consists of the past, present and future, but uh, since we know everything about the past and the present, or at least you could look it up, the only thing that's interesting about time is the future. And so then my little essay was about what is the future of physics? So then I, the rest of my several hours of essay consisted of a little paragraph about astrophysics, which would be cosmology, gravitational waves, so on. A little bit about solid state physics, which would be transistors and computers and so on. A little bit about single particle physics, CERN and particle colliders. A little bit about fusion research and how it's going to produce unlimited power. And then the final one out of about five or six areas was biophysics. And I said, okay, biophysics needs physicists to do physics in biology. And we had had um, 
a very good physics teacher at high school called Bill Cow, who was just an enthusiast. And he was keen also on biology. And he had recorded a lecture by one of the lecturers in Edinburgh University called um, Jack Dainty. And he was in the Edinburgh University uh, biophysics department, but they would never make him into a professor. He was a lecturer or a reader. So eventually, and he was there still while I was at, at university. I never met him, but our physics teacher recorded Dainty giving a lecture while we were still in high school and played it back to us. And it was Jack Dainty. He was putting an electrode down the middle of Nutella, which is a, a, a plant cell with a big cell and looking at um, electrical currents in yeah, Nutella. Yeah. And uh, Bill said, this is the future of physics in biophysics. So uh, four years later, I went through all the different options and decided that he was right. And so then I said, okay, now I've decided on biophysics. Where can, where in Britain can I go? I didn't want to go out of the country. So I, I then tried to research biophysics all over Britain. And in the physics department, the Medical Research Council, where I ended up, yeah. uh, nobody had heard of it in the physics department. I certainly heard, I hadn't heard of the Medical Research Council. But in our physics department, there was everybody who was doing a PhD or thinking of it. There was the Science Research Council in those days, which is now metamorphosed into six different research councils. So the SRC had a handbook this thick, and I looked through it, found biophysics, found all the biophysics departments in Britain, which was, you know, Oxford, London, Leeds, Norwich, and Dainty by then was in Norwich in my final year. So I wrote to them all and said, what do you do? Do you do PhDs in biophysics? And several of them, Leeds and Norwich, wrote back and said, we don't allow anybody into our university to do a PhD. You have to do an MSc first. And I said, well, I'm, I've had it with exams, no more exams for me. So I went round anyway, and I went to King's College in London, and it was uh, John Randall, Maurice Wilkins, Jack Lowy, Gene Hansen. It was a really good department. So I went there in you know November 1965, all the way down to London in our old car, uh, went there for a day, and I thought it was quite, quite a good department. So I wrote to them and said, I've decided I'd like to do a PhD in biophysics at King's College. And they wrote back to me, um, Strother Arnott, uh, uh, saying that, OK, thank you for your application. We'll let you know. <laughs> so they didn't say I could come. Um, so I thought, well, maybe you know, while I'm waiting for them to reply, I should go and tell the head of department in Edinburgh, the physics department, who was called Bill Cochrane. Uh, so I made an appointment, went to talk to the head of department, said, I am in your final year physics class. And there were only 40 of us, so he probably, he probably knew who I was. I said, I've decided to go into biophysics and I'm going to King's College London. And he said, oh, he said, no, he said, you mustn't do that. <laughs> so finally, I found somebody who knew about it. Yeah. I'd never talked. He said, you must write to Perutz in Cambridge. So I wrote to Perutz, J. 
January 1966 and uh, heard nothing back. So after about six weeks, I'm wandering around the physics department then by saying, you know, this, um, this lab in Cambridge is no good. I wrote to them six weeks ago, they haven't replied yet. And, and they said, I, I said, I'm thinking of writing another letter asking them whether they, and they said, oh, no, no, don't do that. They've been writing for references. So finally, I did get a little note from Max. One line said, dear Mr. Henderson, um, thank you for your um, interest. Would you, would you like to come and visit the lab? This is where I am now in the building here. <laughs> so I immediately wrote back saying, dear um, Dr. Perutz, um, yes, I would like to come and visit the lab. Could I come next week? <laughs> so then he writes back immediately. He said, um, yes, you could come next week, but it'd be much better if you came three weeks on Saturday uh, when we have a special open day for students. Yeah. So I went on the train overnight, no hotels, no staying. So I get overnight train to Cambridge, arrived at 8 a.m. at the station on a Saturday morning, came to the lab and there were about 30 students, 28 of them from Cambridge and two, one from London, one from Edinburgh. And they're all working Saturday morning, they're all working. I thought this, this is better than King's because on Wednesday, uh, five o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, it was getting pretty quiet and I was about the last one to leave. But in Cambridge on Saturday morning, they're all working. So I said immediately. So I withdrew my application to King's and applied to the lab and they accepted me about two days later, say, doesn't matter what your degree is, you can come. So they didn't even care whether I had a first, second, you know. Yeah. So, so anyway, I ended up here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've been here for 53 years or something like that. So that, that there you go. That's, that's how I got into biophysics. That's a long, long time. There's two things I'd like to pick up. The first one, it's more, I'm just more interested. What, what was your car that you drove down to London in? Ah, that would, it, had I had time to show you, uh, I have a beautiful photograph of the car. Actually, I can send it to you. It was a Morris 8 Series E. 1948 and we bought it in 1962 when I was 17. So um, I had two friends who were also studying physics and yeah. also came from the same class in Borough Muir School in Edinburgh. And when we, one, and two of us were too young to drive. So one of the three of us had been taught by his father how to drive. So the three of us, we each put 10 pounds into the kitty and we bought our car for 30 pounds, which was about 10% of the new price. Yeah. And it was a, it was a 14 year old Morris 8 Series E and it worked actually, you know, it went wrong a lot. So we, we became very good motor car repair engineers. But the one friend who could drive taught the other two of us how to drive because that was our hobby. And of course, we both passed our test within eight weeks or something like that. And then we had one car between three of us and we would just share it. So we would take it to the Highlands. I, I took it to 
I took it around Ireland with a couple of other friends once and it broke down a lot but we got expert at fixing it in the end and then after about a year and a half with the three of us owning it one of the friends decided he wanted out yeah so we we each gave him five pounds to buy out his share share. (laughs) and then um about a year later my parents moved out of edinburgh into the country into and i needed transport so i traded in my share as well uh for five pounds or something like that and bought um i bought um a motor a vespa motor scooter because you know we didn't have much money but mm. we lived uh in edinburgh but we were about to move to uh broxburn which is about 15 miles from edinburgh in the countryside sort of but i'd noticed that in the backyard of our house where we lived right in the middle of edinburgh there was a an old vespa that had been there for six months and um so i asked my mum who was quite well organized could she find out uh what that vespa was doing and she found out that it was owned by somebody who had bought it you know they were new new then they were about probably about 100 pounds so this guy who was in his 20s had bought a vespa scooter for about 30 pounds and didn't like it so he tried to sell it back to the dealer and the dealer said, okay, he said, um, I'll give you 10 pounds for it. <laughs> he said, that's rubbish. He said, I could make more money by breaking it up for parts. And so he wasn't knowledgeable. He, start, he cut out all the wires, you know, everything was just complete mess. And so it didn't work. So, my, so I bought it for seven pounds. So I sold my car, my share in the car, my half share, which yep. would be 15 pounds initially sold it for five pounds and bought the scooter for seven pounds and then reconnected all the wires and got it all working. It it never was quite, but it worked. And then it it turns out riding a motorbike or a scooter in Scotland in the winter. (laughs) It's not very clever, is it? It's a dangerous thing, actually. And one morning I was working on the post at Christmas to earn money delivering the post. It involved driving from broxburn into edinburgh at 7 30 in the morning on my little vespa scooter so i'm going along 45 miles an hour and you know it's very early morning not a lot of traffic and i had this feeling as though i was floating on air and it turned out it was black ice completely invisible and friction coefficient of zero so eventually the wheels have lost traction and the scooter swung to the side and then went back and it got eventually I fell off and I skidded along for you know 20 30 yards uh but it's completely smooth so my trousers are undamaged because I'm I'm on ice you haven't stopped yet though pardon you're still sliding at this point you haven't stopped it's the stopping that hurts scooter is sliding um it stopped before me because it had metal I slid on, but I, I got up. I mean, it's in, it's in a big waterway road. Fortunately, there were no cars coming. So I got the scooter up, got back on, and then was a bit more careful because I realized now it's icy. But at that point, I decided that perhaps it was time to trade in the motorbike scooter 
So then I did buy, um, having saved up some money, I did buy an Austin A30 for 60 pounds. And then I, I, I had that for about five or six years. And then when we went to America to be postdocs, yep. I eventually sold my 60 pound Austin A30 that I bought, that I'd you know used for it. I sold it to the same friend who bought my share in the uh, Morris 8, yep. and I sold it to him for five pounds. <laughs> he seems he to do quite it. well with five pounds, doesn't he? <laughs> exactly. So you can see that, um, you know, uh, I had a lot of knowledge and expertise, but no money. So it's amazing what you can do with five, you know, that now that would be about 50 pounds. So you'd be, you'd be selling a pile of old junk for 50 pounds, but you know, you, you can, you can easily buy a car. Now you can get beautiful cars for 50 or hundred pounds. And as, as long as you're willing to fix it yourself, if you want a garage to fix it, you're better to spend a bit more. But so, so there's two things. Don't take this the wrong way, but you're a very clever man. So I thought until you bought a, a, a scooter, a Vespa up in Scotland, because that was always going to happen. That was always going to happen up there. So the other side is you, you said that was your hobby was 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 uh, your car and fixing your car, engineering your car. What other hobbies do you have? Because you know, you've gone down, you, you're at the LMB, you're working six days a week. You're working on Saturdays. What did you do outside of work? At what age? <laughs> oh, God, God. When, I was, when I was um, a young lad, I didn't really, I didn't have any hobbies at all, actually. Um, I have, I have uh, so many hundreds of stories, actually, but um, it's because they, they, you know, they impressed it on me. But, um, you know, I was brought up in rural Roxburghshire, which is two or three miles north of the border uh, with England. And I, I, my mum tried to get me to read books. And I did try, but I never managed to read a single book of any kind. And I had um, my mother's family lived in Edinburgh. And we visited once a year for a week for a holiday. And my grandmother's sister, so my great aunt, she owned a little corner shop in Edinburgh, uh, in William Street, and she sold newspapers, uh, firewood, fire lighters, cigarettes, chocolates. Uh, it was it was a general store. It would be, it was like Sainsbury's, but tiny. And she had to work from seven a.m. till seven p.m. every day. And the one, and she didn't have any children of her own. But the great thing for me is that every week from the age of about six, she sent me every single child's comic in the newsagent shop. So every week we got this package, which came from the grandparents and the great aunt. Yeah. And it, you know, it would have things for my parents in it. But for me, it had maybe 15 comics. Everyone, the lion, the dandy, the beano. You what know. was your favourite? Pardon? What was your favourite comic? The favourite one? Good question. Um, I think there was one called, they, they didn't have the, the, the one I would have liked, which was not in my aunt's shop, was the eagle. 
Okay. Yep. So I've heard of it at least. But, but no, but I'm leading into it. So that's what I had. And then uh, since once I'd read them, they had no further value to me. So I'd give them away. And as a result, I became quite popular for giving away free copies of one week old comics. But in our village, you know, there must have been 800 people. The school had about 150 pupils in it. Our class had 20, 20 pupils, seven classes, you know, 150 people. Uh, the year ahead of me, one of the people I knew was another young lad, a year older than me, and he was the son of the headmaster of the school. And I was slightly friendly with him, but one time when I'm about 12, 11 or 12, something like that, he went to the same secondary school as well, and we went on the train every day from the village where I grew in Newcastleton to Hoyke, which is, you know, 20 miles north. So every day, morning and evening, we went on the train, and of course there were 20 or 30 other children. And the headmaster's son went on the same train, so I was slightly friendly with him. And one time I'm visiting his house, and I notice that he has a copy of a little magazine called Boys Own Paper. Now, you may not have heard of this, but nope. that was uh, a very boy-oriented paper, you know, with adventure stories and so on and so on. And so um, when I got back home, I told my mom, I said, you know, there is this very good uh, magazine, which my aunt doesn't send us, because she didn't have that. She didn't have the Eagle and she didn't have the Boys Own Paper. Um, the ones she did have, though, were things like The Wizard. You know, there were, there were a lot of child's um, comics. Anyway, I persuaded my mum that she should buy me once a month uh, the boy's own paper, which is like a shilling or something like that. Yeah. And um, in a way, that was the first time I became any, any interest. So uh, one of the issues, which is, you know, January 1959, which is about, I'm, I don't know, 13 and a half. This was the, the issue. It came and it had a center page pullout spread. It said, build your own one valve shortwave radio set. So I read this. I thought, this is really interesting. You know, we're, we're cut off here in the middle of nowhere. We have no contact. You could, you, you know, we did have a TV that worked very badly. Reception was very bad. There's no transmitter yeah. you know, for 40 miles. So I decided I, I would, my project, which is the beginning of the first hobby, I would build this one valve crystal set. But we had no components whatsoever. So I wrote to my grandmother, who lived in Edinburgh. I said, um, I need the following components. Um, and in Edinburgh, they had lots of shops, of course. So my grandmother would go to an electronic component shop called Browns on the Mound, which isn't there anymore. And she sent me the valve, you know, the, the tuning, uh, the coils. And there were, there were only about eight components. And I wired them all up according to the center pullout spread, and it didn't work. So you know, 
I spent months <laughs> making this thing. It didn't work. <laughs> so then I had to compare the physical layout with the schematic wiring diagram, which of course I'd never looked at before. Then yep. I realized that the coil, which was the official one I was supposed to use, uh, they changed the design between when they did the, you know, the article and when I got my version of it. So the connections were wrong on the coil. So when, it, when, when, um, when I connected them correctly, it worked perfectly. So then I had a, a one valve radio um, that I could then look, listen to myself without having to bother anybody else. The only thing was it was, um, you don't get much gain out of one valve. So you have to run it close to being a transmitter. You're almost oscillating. It's called a regenerative receiver. And as it went, as it crossed over from being a, you know, an amplifier to a transmitter, it would broadcast a lot of interference <laughs> and our neighbor who was a next house complained that she'd been getting a lot of interference on on her radio reception and that was my shortwave radio it's all your fault being a transmitter instead of yeah anyway and that was partly and then from then on i became interested in electronics and um you know uh, and actually unfortunately when we went to high school on the train we couldn't stay so i couldn't go to you know they had a after school uh, clubs but because the train there was only one train back i couldn't go to any of them so it was all it was all self-taught hobby and i did that probably till the age of about 20 something like that and then when i left home to come to cambridge i left all my electronics and you know power supplies and stuff in my mum's house and after about a year and a half she didn't tell me she decided to get rid of it <laughs> she threw so your hobby she, out quite literally threw your hobby she, out well she gave it away to another teenage boy so i i don't have any of those things anymore but the ones that i'd kept and and taken with me to cambridge when we eventually went to america i had to get rid of those as well and so um I sold some of them to another friend that had been from school and university. And unfortunately, he died age 60. So he'd had this stuff that he bought from me for 40 years. So I got them back. So now I, ha I have in our house, I have a 1942 working shortwave radio that is 1942 that's uh, 58 78 years old and because we were locked up with coronavirus for the last year i decided that this was the perfect time to fix all the old clocks radios and broken stuff around the house and when i when i switched it on about six months ago it didn't work of course because it didn't yeah. be, hadn't been switched on for so i did spend about a week replacing all of the electrolytic capacitors, which of course, you know, they dried out and so on. So now it works perfectly again. It's almost as good as the ones you buy that have got uh, microchips running them. You fixed it, but it sounds like it's going to be a new one at this point. It <laughs> just kind of replacing all new parts. It's, it's kind of well, no, 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 I left all the old components are there. So, you know, with electrolytics, you can just wire a new one and they're much smaller. 
you just wire them in parallel and then you just ignore the old one. That, that, so, yeah, good. so I mean, it's uh, it works quite well actually, it's really good. So, so I've heard, I've, I've now got to ask this question Are you a, are, are you a minimalist or are you a maximist at home? Because it sounds like you hoard a lot of stuff. Yeah, we never throw out anything. Yeah, I'm a yeah, you're a hoarder. Boy. Well, no, um, I've got numerous other you have to bear with me, Peter. Uh, we have a reasonably big house, but when we moved into it 22 years ago, I thought since it's empty, this is the time, and so we 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 put floorboards in the attic. So our attic is full of pre war radios, you know, TV sets, record players. And then all the old papers and files, meetings, and things all up in the attic. And that uh, idea that you can use the attic came originally from uh, the house we lived in in Broxburn, which was you know yeah. the second two years of my four-year degree in Edinburgh. And my parents moved out um, to a less expensive house in the countryside, and it was. Um, a terraced block with about 10 houses but each of them had an up and a door so it was 20 houses uh i don't think it was very expensive it had um, it had one room that was pretty small which was the kitchen and the sitting room in one and then it had two bedrooms my parents were in one bedroom and my brother and i were in a bunk bed in the other bedroom and that was our house. And then when I'm about 17 or 18 and in university, um, I'd noticed that there was a, a, a hole up into the attic, not very big. So we, we looked up there. And then when you go up into the attic in these old, you can look along. <clears throat> and it was the attic for the entire block of houses. And there's nobody up there. So I asked my mum and dad, I said, do you think we could put a bigger trap door? So we, we bought a loft ladder yep. and, and then um, you could get up into the ladder. And then um, we got a little skylight put in, which was you know very cheap, just a, a pane of glass, you could open and close it. And then uh, this friend and I, the, the one, of the people who shared the car he had his father had a bigger car that was um, an estate car so it opened the back one day we drove down to the docks in edinburgh uh, where they had a shipyard and a wood yard and so on and I, we bought for eight pounds we bought an entire carload of floorboards and then took them back and then um I spent probably about a week flooring the loft completely. Just the entire house. Just above the bit about above your terrace? Yeah. yeah. It was you, a bit about our terrace, but actually, you know, you could go a little bit further into the neighborhood. There was nobody else there. So then uh, we had a loft ladder, a skylight, and a floor, but no walls. And so um we put two single beds up there. So one for me, and then one I means I could have a friend to visit. And then my brother could have the 
yeah, the, the proper bedroom. He had that to himself, so he was quite pleased. This is about like six months after we moved there, and then I, I, I probably, you know, I was only there for for two years. But during that time, once it became clear it worked quite well, uh, we added. I added walls. <laughs> That's good four, to know. Four walls, but I left it so that you could you could you could remove a bit out of the wall and put stuff behind the walls in the other in, in the other people's attics. Yeah, yeah yeah well you know yeah yeah people and then we've we've continued to do that so in our house uh we we then when we came back from america when we we're let's say late 20s and we've got children now we did the same thing in the semi and it was before they they had um now you they don't do this they have dividing walls in the attic so you can't go in but we went up into the semi-detached house and it's the same our side and the neighbor's side and so we we floored that as well and then so we've also from teenage we've always had homemade floored attics and they're always the complete size of the whole house so it's an immensely so i recommend anybody who lives in a house with an attic that they should floor it and get to get a little, you know, a pull down ladder. Uh, and then it, it's, it's not only another room, it's another room bigger than any other room anywhere in the house. So, see, yeah. see, my father-in-law has a, has his train track at, at model village, ah, his loft, which is, you know, when you take the grandchildren down, they love it. Actually, I think we all quite like it. <laughs> it, it it's, it's really cool. Jerry's it's still just, there, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, he did just part of it. It's got a part for storage, and it's got this lovely bit. It's, it's he's done an amazing job. Uh, so they, I guess his hobby at the time is, is setting that up and still running. Uh, so, that's, so that's brilliant. And actually, I say grandchildren, you'll have great grandchild. Uh, not from us, not from my side. <laughs> uh, that that will be enjoying that very very soon. So, some other questions, Richard, because I, I, I realise time is flying past us really fast. Uh, can I ask you some quick fire questions? Do you prefer email or telephone? Well, I, I'm happy either, but hardly anybody uses telephone nowadays, actually. So I, I have possibly, you know, I don't know, 50 or 100 emails a day and no phone calls. And e even the children now and the grandchildren, they do FaceTime or um, Zoom or yeah. Skype. I, I should have, I should have probably said email or Zoom or equivalent. <laughs> It's probably yeah. I, well, I do mainly. I I have I've, I've specifically never joined Twitter or Facebook. And actually, I remember you know Brian Hartley, who died very recently, ninety five. He was one of the mentors in the early LMB building. Um, he said, "I never read the literature." He said, "If something important happens, somebody will tell me about it." <laughs> and so uh, with Twitter. Normally, in a normal day in the lab, you know, I'd be here working and then I'd go for coffee in, in the canteen. And to do that, normally you, we walk through, you know, there's a shared terminal room where people can go with slightly more powerful computer. So one day I'm walking through the terminal room and um, one of the scientists there, Paul Emsley, said, oh, have you seen Twitter today? I said, no, I don't read. So he was telling me what he'd read in Twitter five minutes before. So, you know, it was really hot off the presses. Yeah. 
And so there are, I would say most people do have a Twitter connection now, you know, 90% of the younger, of the younger generation. And so they tell you what's happening. But, you know, I, I just don't have the time to do it. You can't do everything. You have, you have to be careful and focused with your time. And one of the great things, unfortunately, you know, the bad thing about the coronavirus is you, your normal social connections, you know, going to meetings and so on. But, but the great thing is no traveling and you can get a lot more work done. And if you don't do Twitter and Facebook, that must save you hours a day. I, I, you know, I think without the travel, it's just made life busier because you haven't got the downtime when you're sitting on a plane. <laughs> it's kind of the one time you could get away from everything in a way. <laughs> so you said you never read a book as a child. Uh, what do you prefer to do now? Watch TV or read a book? Well, I, I mean, I, I tend to, you know, I do, I do both of these things actually, but with books, I tend to anything I think I need to read, I, I, I buy it and I don't throw them away. So we have increasing. And so often you can, you can skim a book, you know, in a few minutes, you know, randomly reading, you get the whole idea of it. So there, I have quite a lot of partially read books. And then um, I do watch uh, TV. And particularly over the last year, I am now very well versed in uh, films from the 50s and 60s. I was say, what, what do you watch though? What do I watch? Is those 50s, well, 60s films? Uh, if, well, I mean, there's a lot of Hitchcock, all the Hitchcock films from 1935 onwards. They're, they're very, very, very good. Um, but let's say of, of the things I've watched recently, for something like this, you know, um, bite size, whatever, um, the one I can strongly recommend and I thought was wonderful was the series called Breaking Bad. Now, you must have watched this. I, I, actually, I haven't watched it, but I, I do know of it, of course. Peter, you I... must, you must watch it. And I'll tell you my, you know, two little mini things about I had not heard of it because, you know, I, yeah, I, you wait for things to arrive. But my son, who's now in his 40s, he said, Dad, you must watch Breaking Bad. And I said, oh, I'll, I will, I will, I will. But then, uh, then I hadn't watched it. So next time uh, I visit him, he says, um, let's watch the pilot opening episode, which is a one hour, all the other 45 minutes. And so I can recommend to you, Peter, watch the Breaking Bad pilot episode, one hour. And, and then this, the second tip, so Alistair and his friends had found out about this you know, five or six years ago, and they had bought a boxed set for 40 pounds and they passed it around and they watched it. But by the time he had found it, it was on Netflix. And this is the thing that made Netflix take off. Uh, my son, Alistair, said, if you subscribe to Netflix, it's free for the first month and you can watch Breaking Bad for nothing. So I signed on to Netflix and it's 64 episodes if, in the complete series. <clears throat> so it's probably about 45 hours. And I watched, you know, maybe two, two a night, uh, sometimes three, sometimes none. 
but I managed to watch the entire series in three weeks. Did you unsubscribe from Netflix at the end? <laughs> yeah, and then I said, <laughs> Netflix is so good, I'm going to subscribe. Okay. And now, uh, both our, they all, the children, the grandchildren, they all subscribe to Netflix. And it, it, I mean, it is still very, very good. A lot of other companies now are catching up on it. So Breaking Bad, it's about, you must have heard a story. Yeah, don't, don't, don't work. I, 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 I will move quickly. I will watch it. You are it's such a, 50, a... It's, it's a 52 year old chemist, <clears throat> a chemistry teacher in high school. He's the, the main character, Walter White. I, I, I will. I promise I will watch it. I, yeah. I, I, I promise that. You'll uh, find it if, if you have a, you know, it has a scientific underpinning and it's terribly well written, actually. You, you'll really enjoy it. Anyway, so I will give it a go. Uh, so the next question is, do you have a pet hate? Hate? Yeah, a pet hate. Something you just really, you don't like, winds you up, just oh, what niggles you? I don't, I, I have, um, I don't have any hates, but I have a lot of things that I find very amusing. Well, <laughs> and so okay. things that I find very amusing would fall into the category of things that other people hate. Uh, for example, um, I find it very um, funny how easy it is that some people can uh, delude themselves into believing something. And for example, in science, mm. they have some theory about biology or chemistry and to any normal person you can tell it's it's complete rubbish but somehow or other the world has come in and they're focused on it and they are completely so the the two interpretations of somebody who has um published a wrong paper or has a wrong idea the two possible explanations are you know assuming that they're wrong either they have they genuinely believe it and they're deluded or they're dishonest and are doing scientific fraud. <laughs> yeah, that, that latter one's really bad. <laughs> so, you know, you have yeah. to look at a particular thing and you have to ask yourself, is this a naive, deluded person or is this a devious scientific fraud person? So I find this very amusing. But, you know, not every people think, think you think, <laughs> oh, you're being, you're being wicked. But no, I, I think it's just funny, actually. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you now. Do you think people thought you might have been a fraud when you told everyone that X-ray was no longer the way forward and they should all be going towards electron microscopy? Because there must have been a load of people there thinking, wait a minute, this is not right. Well, you, you know... You were I, proved right. So you, you're being proved correct, but... Yeah, no, but you have to realise, you know, I never... I, I came from fairly um non-academic rural background so for me every step is a step forwards and upwards so i've never ever had any doubts about this thing but i can tell you one interesting story is actually um there are many related to this but the reason that i said that i wasn't looking to do it but what happened was we all assumed that everybody knew that uh radiation x-rays or electrons damage did radiation damage and from about 1980 or 1990 
uh, onwards, you know, it was clear what it was. And I thought everybody just knew this. Uh, the first thing was when Ada Yonath, who, you know, has a Nobel Prize for the ribosome work, she was one of the first people with Hack and Hope to freeze crystals and put them in a synchrotron. And she said at a Gordon conference in, you know, New Hampshire, she, she said, you know, when you freeze a crystal to liquid nitrogen temperature, uh, the diffraction lasts forever. There is no damage. And of course, we'd been doing electron microscopy for years. We knew when you put the beam on it, it lasts for a few seconds. So we said uh, that must be wrong. And so one of the first things I, I compared in 1990, X-ray and, and, and EM, and showed that in order to find X-ray damage in 1990, you'd need three days to irradiating in synchrotrons then to find the damage, or five years on an X-ray source, and just nobody had done it. So that was a paper that was published in 1990. I assumed everybody knew that. Um, but the people who are running the European synchrotron facility that was being built in Grenoble were trying to build different beam lines and they had a meeting to discuss X-ray microscopy. And uh, it was Carl Brandane and Andrew Miller, the director and designate director and acting director and so on. They said, would I come along to the meeting and give a talk about radiation damage and X-rays? So I thought, well, fine, you know, this is, this is common knowledge. So I went along to this meeting and there are 50 X-ray microscopists who think X-rays is like best things in sliced bread. And I stand up and I explain that um, electrons do 1,200 times less damage than X-rays. And they were really angry <laughs> because they wanted 5 million euros to build a beam line. And I'm telling them that it's rubbish. And I almost got lynched, actually. And so that was the reason I decided I better write a... If these 50 intelligent people, the best in the world, actually, didn't know this, then somebody needs to raise the profile. So I started to write a, a review. It was comparing x-rays and electrons. But during that time, uh, a journal called Neutron News, it's still published three times or four times a year, came with all the cross sections for neutrons so in the end i wrote this article neutrons electrons and x-rays you know which ones are the ones you should do in theory and it turns out not only are electrons a thousand times less damaging than x-rays per useful scattered event yep. they're three times less damaging than neutrons which are thought to have no damage and uh so i wrote that review and then we and then i was having written it i was then personally so convinced that we stopped all our work and then decided to focus on single particle electron crime microscopy and howard hughes once had a meeting i went along and michael rossman who was here in the lab when he was a postdoc you know with max went to purdue died about a year ago i was asked to give a talk at howard hughes and um, Michael was in the audience as <laughs> listening to this. And after I'd given my talk saying 1,400, Michael stood up and said, well, he said, this is not what I've been teaching my students, you know, for the last 30 years. He said, must be wrong. And then, but what he hadn't realized is that 
it is true that electrons are actually a hundred thousand times more damaging in terms of their cross section. But if you look at the ratio of scattering to damage, it's a thousand times worse than, uh, than x-rays. So it was just a, a learning experience. And so everybody then accepted it and then we went on. So no, we didn't have, I never had any trouble convincing people because all you have to do is write down the facts. And eventually there's this review, which is now, it wasn't cited much at the beginning. So it's, it's a paper that we call, you know, when you publish a paper, you may have seen this yourself. You publish it in a journal and the journal has an impact factor, yep. number of citations on average in the following two years. And it has a half life because normally when you publish in nature, it gets cited for the next year and then it decays the second year. And the half life is usually about one to two years. But if you have a really good paper, that's what they call seminal. It has no citations in the first year, and then it just grows linearly with time. So actually it has a negative half-life. So we think that the best papers have a negative half-life and they, they have, you know, they have their own momentum and they grow. Um, and so I, that's I, because it's also, it, it, because others aren't doing it, and if it's a technology, there's not many people can cite a new technology until they've done something with it. And then it will grow, and obviously, massively in the case of our structural and cryo em itself but you know dna sequencing cloning all those papers they'll be in that they're all in that category because they were new ideas that then everybody cites until they get tired and then they cite a textbook or something but i i, I cannot believe we've been talking for over an hour uh, and these are meant to be an hour long and i've got so many questions i still want to ask you so do you know what I, I hope no one minds if you just go on just a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, no, I'm happy to do. I can do 10 second answers as well. I just wasn't. Yeah, no, 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 okay. Do you know what? What's your favorite music? Uh, good question. Hmm. I wasn't a very big music fan, but I did decide I needed to it. So uh, Bach's cello concertos. Okay. What's your favorite food? Uh, well, I had um, sausage and mash for lunch today. With onion gravy? Yeah. Of course. It was Lincolnshire sausages with, uh, you know, it's really good. Okay. And, and also, when, you know, when I was young, we had a, at the bottom of our street in Tweedmouth, which is the opposite shore of the Tweed from Berwick, fish and chips is very good. Oh, yes. Probably bad uh, for you, but anyway. In the right place, right, at the right time, in the right place. What about this? Is an odd question. What is your favorite item of clothing? Ah, good question. Mm. Well, I have never changed my tastes, and I've worn sports shirts and sweaters <clears throat> for my entire life. That, that's a perfect. Also answer, never, I've never had a beard, except for two weeks when the children wanted me to grow one. Yeah, I cut it off. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm afraid I, I, I'm not. I, I don't really change. I'll tell you one thing that might be interesting. When we were children, we were always asked, "What is your favorite color and what is your favorite number?" And I always said, it was purple and seven. And later on, when I was about 
25, I started to work on purple membrane. Yeah, of course, with the seven plus A couple of years later, we discovered it had seven transmembrane helices. Yeah. Right, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it was fate. It was fate. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I do you know. I was going to mention. I, I know you like hill walking. Uh, do you still kayak? Yeah, we have two in the garage. Don't go so often now, though. But it's amazing. The same, actually, the same friend who had the part ownership of the car last time he visited Cambridge, we kayaked from um, one of the villages into Cambridge. We, you always paddle down. The key thing about kayaking, you always go downstream, and then if even if you get tired, you just wait, and the river takes you it to where take you I, I thought you were going to say that he, your friend came down and bought it off you for a fiver. A fiver. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing because no. actually so many scientists that I've talked to uh, for the microscopies kayak. Jennifer Lippicott-Schwartz still kayaks to work over to Denelia Research Campus. Mm -hmm. uh, Alison North still kayaks on her holidays. It's amazing just the number of kayakers. I bet, I bet you Jennifer Quartz, Jennifer Quartz, Quartz doesn't kayak in both directions so she probably lives upstream and kayaks in in the morning and then go, takes it back on her car roof rack i, I think she goes both i, I don't know i think she might go both ways it's difficult <laughs> well unless it's a very it, there is a river right so there she's going across so it's the river selden and she's going across eh? or selden island isn't it so it's all right over there so yeah, so, so that, that's quite entertaining listening to back when it gets too dark is maybe not the best thing. But it was a, there was a few with that. Anyway, uh, all our all our best kayaks have been have been taken by the children. So we only have the ones that are not terribly exciting left. I say I, I do have I re, maybe we'll do another one of these and come back to more questions in the future because this has been so brilliant. I'm going to ask you though. What do you think is the biggest challenge going forward, scientifically? Scientifically. What's the big science challenge that needs to be addressed? A lot of the young students and postdocs ask that question, actually. Um, so the biggest challenge going forward, or at least the one you might want to work on, depends on how old you are. Okay, so if you're 75, this is not the time to start on a project that's going to take 30 years. But when I was um, a first year postdoc at Yale, I thought I should simply, having worked on an enzyme for my PhD, I thought I'll just pick another enzyme slightly more interesting than the first one and work on that. And then there'd be plenty more. But when I told my postdoctoral sponsor this, he was a very clever Chinese professor in the chemistry department. Actually, chemi chemistry department at Yale is where I did a postdoc uh, without any background whatsoever in chemistry. Um, we stopped with inorganic aged 14 in high school. But he said, oh, he said, no, he said, I don't think you should work on an enzyme. He said, uh, there are thousands of enzymes in the world. When you're 25 years old, you should pick a topic to work on that will come to fruition in 20 years. And so I said, this is very good advice. So I stopped working on enzymes and started to work on membrane proteins, yep. which in 1970 was very, very badly understood. So now, I mean, I think the big, big, big frontier uh, is uh, the neurosciences and how, how memory and learning works in the brain.
but I would say there, there isn't really a big rush to get into that just at the moment because the techniques that exist at the moment are not powerful enough to get to the bottom of it. You can make progress and eventually there'll be a breakthrough, but what you really need is one micron and one millisecond resolution on the entire human brain. You know, and of course you've got, you know, 15 centimeters, so that's um, 150 millimeter, 150,000, that's nearly a million pixels in each direction. That's 10 to the 18th pixels. And if you, if you were to record every millisecond activity, uh, yeah. you'd be talking about 10 to the 21 numbers per, uh, per second. And this, this is beyond any capability at the moment. And so you have to, you know, dissect it down into more digestible lumps. And that's why everybody's, a lot of people are working on Drosophila brain. It's only 300,000 cells or the nematode brain, only 300. But the human brain, it, it will be, it's not, it'll not be, the, it'll never be the last frontier because you can always invent things, but understanding learning and memory and, and how, you know, we think and, and work, that is, and I actually, I remember having a chat with Colin Blakemore, who is a neuroscientist who worked on cat vision and was the head of the MRC for a while. And I sat beside him in a lecture. I said, you know, this neurobiology is very interesting and obviously many things to learn, but how long do you think it'll be before we understand learning and memory? And after a lot of hooing and hawing, we both decided it's at least 30 years in the future. So, you know, there's no hurry. If you, if you spend five years doing something else and you're a young scientist, you can easily get into it five years from now. There's no rush. In fact, it might be better because uh, one of our favorite things is, you know, if you're wrestling with some technology thing, one solution to solving the problem, instead of working hard at it and killing yourself, you could just go on holiday for two or three years come back and all the problems you they'll be solved by someone else and then you can just slot back in at a much uh, more advanced state of development of the field so there are two strategies one is to delay getting into something until the time is ripe and fred sanger did this with nucleic acid sequencing he was studying it for 15 years before the methods and then as soon as they were available he jumped in and he was then in the lead i i am going to plug uh, Jeff Lickman's. I, I, I know you've listened to Eric's, uh, so Eric Betsy's uh, microscopist podcast. And interestingly, how he actually doesn't like electron. He was quite controversial, and he says electron microscopy is not. Yeah, you know, it's all got to be like microscopy. And then actually, what you've just been saying, you then got the other extreme where Jeff Lickman is working on looking at the brain, three uh, D electron microscopy through that. And it's interesting how you've got all these various aspects, but you're absolutely right. We need to do it live. Yeah, you do. And it needs to be there. And But we need these other techniques to keep informing us so we can make sense. When we get there, that will help us make sense of your one micron per microsecond for the full volume. So it's not work in vain. Well, you know, you can do... You can do... Um magnetic resonance imaging of the whole body and the whole brain but the resolution is about a millimeter so to go from a millimeter to a micron it's 10 to the ninth 
you know, it, it's it's off the horizon at the moment. So although, you know, Eric Betzig, they're all terribly enthusiastic about what they do. They're all just scratching at the surface, really. I mean, the, the power of the methods you need is just so much further in the future. I think I think it's um, but, you know, but one area that's interesting, which I, you know, the, 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 the synchrotron people are building X-ray microscopes now. So there is 3D X-ray tomography. And there's a fantastic video now from a group in London called uh, Peter Lee, and they go to Grenoble. And Grenoble synchrotron has just been upgraded to, and then all the synchrotrons in the world are planning upgrades. And so it's not, you can't get angstrom resolution because of the electrons being better than X-rays, but you can do, you know, Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz works at Genelia on this type of uh, plastic section embedding and so on. And they can get 20, 30, 40 uh, nanometer, or, or even um, two, three, four nanometer. They can get resolution subcellular, you can see organelles, but only of one or two cells. But, <clears throat> but the X-ray 3D tomography, you can do the entire body. You can do, so there's a, if you look at Peter Lee, who's at probably University College London, they've got a lung of a normal person and a lung of a coronavirus person. And you've got a, a complete X-ray. And of course, it's a dead person. You can't do it live. It's dead. So you, so, you know, you could donate your brain after you die. And then that could be analyzed by this method. And they can zoom. They can't do the whole thing at one micron, but they can zoom in on sub areas. They do the whole thing at low resolution, and then they can do very finely. Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, there are things coming along, but they're still nowhere near powerful enough. But then arguably where you started and, you know, the innovations you've come through with over the last 30, 40, 50 years is exactly what you're saying. So the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it could get there. Could. There's yeah. always a way. There's always a solution. It just takes time and money to get there. It's time and money, exactly. But you know, when, one of the things that I studied in 1960 was fusion research. And I decided against it because everybody said, oh, it'll be 30 years. Okay, so but 1965 plus 30 years, 1995, you ask, how is fusion research getting along in 1995? And they say, oh, it's going to be about another 30 years. So now here we are in 2021. And they're building, you know, <laughs> fusion demonstration reactor in, in Japan and so on. And they say oh, it would be about 30 years. And then what are we saying about memory and learning? We're saying uh, 30 years. So that basically means you can't predict it. Uh, yeah, Some I, things I, I, go I faster. So, you know, computers and DNA sequencing went faster than we predicted. So in 30 years time, we have to come back to this podcast. People have to hear you quoting that 30 year mark and go, how wise, how wise, even then, into that point. Richard, we are up. I, 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 we ought to stop at this point because <laughs> right. podcast. Thank you so much. I've got to say, it's been enlightening. I didn't realize you were such a wheeler dealer, which, <laughs> which has just been amazing throughout all your career and outside. And uh, yeah, if, if you are getting rid of anything, I always have a five pound note on the side. <laughs> <laughs> right. Back to that. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Sorry.
great fun to chat yeah so thank you everyone for listening and if uh, you'd like to hear more do go to the microscopies podcast or the spotify youtube itunes anything else you can hear eric you can hear jennifer but this has just been so brilliant today so thank you very much for listening good to talk peter thank you for listening to the microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by zeiss microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists